Hey everybody, I'm Tyler, and this is the Early Days Podcast. I created this show as part of my work as an investor at Antler. I wanted to talk to the world's best founders and pick their brains on how they went from zero to one, building some of the most important companies in the world. Today's episode, we have Samir Goel, who is the founder and still the CEO of Susu. Susu is a fintech company that allows landlords to report rental payments to help customers build credit history. The idea originally came from Samir's upbringing, the story of his family coming here at a very young age, and really seeing his parents struggle to financially integrate into their new home, particularly build credit, which gives people access to a lot of the financial services that we're used to having, like buying a home, buying a car, getting a job, etc. Samir has an incredible story, some of the most exciting grit I've ever seen uh, from a founder that's been on the show. He's got a great story of living in a Harry Potter-like room underneath the staircase of a friend's house while Asusu was still finding its legs. But fast forward to today, and 2022, Asusu broke the unicorn barrier. They raised a Series B led by SoftBank Ventures, and the company is doing really well. I'm super excited about this episode. Samir is an absolute inspiration, both from a grit perspective, but also just how passionate he is about solving this particular problem and making the world a better place. Let's dive right in. This is the early days with Samir Goal, the founder of Asusu. Awesome. Well, we are live. Samir, it's great to see you and uh, thanks a lot for being here today. Absolutely. Tyler, great to see you and thanks for having me on. Of course. So Samir, you are co-founder and CEO of Asusu. Uh, just to get us kicked off for listeners, can you tell us a little bit about Asusu? Um, give us your elevator pitch. Yeah, absolutely, Tyler. That's a great question. And, and the thing I always like to do when I talk about what Asusu does is share a little bit about why. And that really stems from my personal experiences along with those of my co-founder, Lamimos. And for me, I actually grew up in an immigrant family from Midway, India, and our pathway to pursuing the American dream was just harder than it should have been. You know, unfortunately, my father was actually mugged on his first day in the country. We didn't really have a place for shelter. And a lot of my childhood unfolded in that way, watching my parents work miracles with no credit and limited financial resources so I can have some of the opportunities I've been afforded. And so inspired by that and with Nemo's experiences, our core ethos has always been, no matter where you come from, the color of your skin or your financial identity, it shouldn't determine where you end up in life. And what we do to achieve that is we partner with large owners and operators of real estate and do three things. When renters pay rent on time, we make sure they, those payments are reported to the credit bureau so they can build credit the same way that a mortgage, uh, a mortgage works. Number two is when people fall behind on rent, we pair them with 0% interest loans paid to the owner or operator so that renters can keep a roof over their head and we can help owners with cash flow. And then finally, we have a data and analytics platform that ties that all together. So that's what we do in a nutshell. Incredible. And what a great mission. And I mean, attaching it back to uh, your your personal journey and, and, and lived experience, that's that's awesome. And uh, I'm actually, I'm going through final underwriting um, to buy a new house. And I mean, dealing with credit scores and credit bureaus <laughs> and underwriting, I mean, it's just an absolute clusterfuck of a system here in the U.S. for, I mean, someone who was born and raised in the United States and have had a credit score for a very long time, 
I'll never get to experience it, but I can only imagine how confusing and confounding the credit score system is in the U.S. for, for immigrants. Yeah, Tyler. Well, first, congrats on uh, almost becoming a homeowner. But yeah, <laughs> to your point, the system is, is backwards, right? We always like to say it's kind of like you're guilty until proven innocent. So if you don't have a credit score, the system just treats you as though you're a high risk, which means that everything's harder, right? Buying a home, getting a job, getting an apartment. It just makes everything uh, a lot messier and a lot more challenging than it needs to be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not to mention like a car, right? I mean, getting a exactly car loan and I think a lot of people move to the United States and only only then realize that like a car is really the only useful way to get around in most of the United States, <laughs> maybe New York, but pretty much the rest of the country, like a car is required. And to move here and realize that like, well, you can't really uh, finance a car unless you have a credit score. So you're going to have to just buy it in cash is, uh, I'm sure, a pretty uh, scary aha moment for people. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We actually just started looking into what our renters do when we help them build and establish their credit. And the first purchase for most of them is actually a car or a car yeah. loan. And so that's that's literally step one, right? Because you get a car, then you have better economic opportunity. You can drive to a job. You can go yeah. somewhere further. You can bring your kids wherever they need to go. But without that, you're kind of just like at the mercy of public transit, which, <laughs> like you said, outside of New York is a little bit hit or miss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think a car is a necessary ingredient in pursuing the American dream, uh, unfortunately. Absolutely. So, Samir, can you, uh, you know, the point of this podcast is really to dive into the early days, um, you know, as the the show name implies. So I'd love to start off um, really first with the team. Um, can you talk to us about how did you meet your co-founder, how did you get? How did you, how did you guys decide that you were going to build this company together? Like, what did that whole process and evolution look like from the time you met to the time you guys, you know, signed all the paperwork and said we're doing this together? Yeah, Tyler, wow, you're, you're bringing me down memory lane a little bit here. But my <laughs> my co-founder and I actually met at a conference called the Clinton Global Initiative uh, Conference, and uh, funnily enough, we both actually attended the same university, which was NYU. And we didn't know it until we went to this conference. And, you know, the, the conference basically brings together young entrepreneurs who are passionate about building something that can better the world. And at the time, we both had separate startup companies. And so we just actually became friends first, respected what each other were doing, made some introductions, and, and kind of became conference buddies. So we would room together at conferences kind of around the country that were relevant for us and, and just became really good friends. And from that, we both kind of took a detour out of startup land and spent some time in corporate America. Uh, myself, I was over at LinkedIn for a few years. Juanimo, my co-founder, he was over at you know PwC and Goldman Sachs, and we ended up reconnecting and meeting at a at a famous chocolate shop, Max Brenner's. Uh, for those of you who are in New York, but it's a, it's basically a chocolate shop uh, in Union Square in New York City, and we had this great conversation that was just around the fact that while we were learning a lot in corporate America, we were making money for the first time in our lives. It really wasn't what we wanted to do with our lives and really wanted to build something bigger than ourselves. And so started noodling on a susu while in our corporate jobs, built it on the side for a couple of years. And then in 2018, when we had some traction around the product, we quit our jobs to focus on it full time. Oh yeah. And so, you know, for people who are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, et cetera, that was sort of the high level version. I'd love to double click down into like the specifics of the conversation. Like, 
it sounded like you guys both wanted to be entrepreneurs and and, and that was clear and you kind of got to know each other by being conference buddies um did you guys ever sit down and like have a tough conversation like how, how did you guys get from like this is really exciting to like what are all the things that we need to discuss to like actually become co-founders did you guys talk about anything establish any frameworks like how did you decide on how things were going to work like all the kind of nitty-gritty of the actual operations of being co-founders how did you guys get through that you know it's it's funny um so what you know and i we actually operate as co-ceos which is relatively non-traditional but i think the thing that we kind of walked into this with was like mutual respect right and the fact that you know we see each other as peers and equals and are always going to operate in that way. And so when we initially incorporated the company, we did it 50, 50 or co-CEOs. We are going to be in this together. And we both kind of made similar financial contributions, right? So every paycheck we got, we would put into the company every Sunday for literally years, right? We'd go to one of our offices and just work on a SUSU for hours and hours and hours. And I think like, you know, we both kind of took a leap of faith, right? So it was kind of like, look, I could invest a lot of time and you could totally drop the ball, but I'm just going to have that faith that you're going to be in this with me. And I think like through that process, seeing it every day, like watching, let's say in this case, Juanilo send an email at like 2 a.m. I'm like, all right, this guy is as committed as this as I am, right? Or, <laughs> you know, me doing something else that was like completely like, you know, uh, a stretch, right? But watching each other make the personal sacrifices, the financial sacrifices, the time sacrifices, I think built that trust and to be honest, we've been through everything, right? We've lived in multiple countries together. We've had to share beds, sleep in diners, do whatever it takes. <laughs> but that sort of stuff is what built that level of trust where I, I just trust him with my life. So, you know, that takes time and repetition. But I think we both just put 100% in. And we're just like, even if that doesn't amount to anything, we're going to kind of lead by example here. And I think we both chose to do that. And it both kind of reinforced kind of being in this and doing it as equals and doing it together. And there was never that sort of imbalance that was created. I love that. Samir, do you know about like the types of fun matrix? Not, not, not necessarily. Tell me, tell me about it. So there's three types of fun. So type one fun is fun while you're doing it. Type two fun is fun in retrospect. It's not, it's not objectively fun while you're doing it, but it's really fun in retrospect, like when you think back to it fondly. And then type three fun is basically not fun. Like type three fun is neither fun while you're doing it nor in retrospect. It's like the opposite of fun. Um, and they're really interesting studies about type one fun is very superficial and actually doesn't help build uh, connections between humans. Type two fun is the most powerful way to build really strong bonds with people. So I'm thinking about it. I have a group of friends from college and we do a type two fun trip every year. And the thinking is as we continue to grow as adults and become, you know, husbands and become fathers and this and that, it's really important for us to continue working on the bonds of friendship mm. and type two fun is the best way to do that. So, you know, we've hiked the Appalachian trail next year. We're going on like a four day canoeing trip where we're going to sleep on the banks of the river blah blah and so while you're mentioning like sleeping in diners and sharing beds and like doing all these things we're like it, it may have actually been fun while you're doing it but i'm sure there's been some like tough days or tough nights where you're just like absolutely wrecked and um you know it's not really that fun but you look back on it so fondly and it's so cool to hear 
you guys building such a strong relationship off of a foundation of sort of shared trust that like we're both in this, we both care about what we're doing and we're both willing to give it everything that we have to make this work. Absolutely. I, I love that framework. I hadn't heard type one and type two fun and, and I guess type three also, but I definitely think building a startup is has to be type two fun because the thing about building anything right is like, it keeps you really humble because every day something good happens and every day something really shitty happens and you just kind of <laughs> got to roll with it. Right. It's like inevitable. You yeah, could have exactly. the best day. You could, it could be yeah. the day that a Susu raised its series B and I guarantee you that the fire like five minutes later <laughs> and it just is what it is. Right. And to be able to go through that with someone is probably one of the best forms of type two fun is you can probably think of. Exactly. So now you can use that framework and you can just say, I always say to myself when I'm in it, I'm like type two fun. This is type two fun right now. Like I'm miserable. Like we did the, we did a section of the AT last year and we like, we took a wrong turn and we only figured it out like 15 miles down the wrong trail that we were going to have to backtrack and effectively add 15. Well, actually add 30 miles to Jeez. our trip. And on the way back, which was like uphill it started to snow and you like couldn't see in front of you or whatever. I just remember being like, what the fuck are we doing out here? Yeah. It's like, what are we doing out here? But it's like, you know, add it to the library of like greatest memories with friends that I'll have for the rest of my life because we went through it together. Um, so that's cool to hear. So talk to me about, you know, you guys, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this, but uh, Asusu just raised a series B um, you know, you guys have joined the Unicorn Club. You guys are doing really, really well, and congratulations on all of that. How do you guys That's manage right. the day-to-day -day relationship as co-founders and co-CEOs? So from, you know, the initial excitement of, like, we're going to start a company together to now, which, you know, I'm sure there's still excitement, but that kind of initial, like, honeymoon period has worn off, and you guys have really settled into uh, what seems to be a very successful and practical relationship. For someone who's got a co-founder thinking about bringing on a co-founder what sort of practical tips and practical frameworks do you guys use to keep that relationship working effectively mm. that's a that's a great question and, and interestingly i think when we what i did in podcast episode on this topic recently but um you know I think the interesting thing for us is some of the best parts of building this issue even today, right? We now have almost 200 employees. We're growing, we're scaling, but still some of the most fun parts of building this company is just he and I together in a room brainstorming about like solving a problem or figuring out what's next or where to go as a business. Like I actually wouldn't trade that time for anything. It's some of the most fun because, you know, we've just been through so much together and built so much of that history. Uh, funnily enough, we're both the, we're both getting married this year. We're the best man at each other's wedding. So we've really Congrats. been able to, uh, thank you. We've been able to kind of traverse that relationship both professionally and personally. But in terms of practical tips, I'd say like one thing that you just need is trust. Like fundamentally, right? You need to be able to walk into a room with your co-founder, whether or not they're a co-CEO, and know that anything that they say is with the best of intent, right? But the minute you lose that trust is when things go wrong because then you're like, okay, why is this person saying that? Is there an ulterior motive? Are we on the same page? So I'd say first and foremost, you just try to have that baseline trust. Number two is I'd say don't avoid difficult conversations, right? Like if there's something you disagree with or don't feel great about, like bring it up, address it and discuss it and make sure that you're on the same page. 
And then the third is like, you know, we always have this mentality. One of our cultural values is forward together. If we have a topic of discussion and we have different points of view and we come to a consensus, we are both 110% bought in, right? So it's like, let's say that we have an idea and I have a perspective or Mimo has a perspective and we go with my perspective and it ends up being wrong. I mean, we'll never be like, oh, you made the wrong call. This is your fault. It's like, we made the wrong call. We failed together or we won together. And I think that sort of stuff really helps. And as we're building an organization, right, I almost think of it like parents, right? If we aren't on the same page, then the organization will feel that. Unfortunately, that's not true. But what I'm seeing is more with like a leadership team, right? If, if people aren't necessarily on the same page about something, then everyone else in the company sees it. And that starts at the top. So really just making sure that we're on the same page and we have those difficult conversations up front and continue to invest in the relationship, right? And create space for each other to grow. Kind of like you talked about with your friends, right? You do the trip every year. We always try to do at least some sort of travel or personal thing every year where we just kind of build our relationship regardless. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, uh, Jeff, my partner and I uh, disagree and commit. So forward, forward together, we say disagree and commit, which is like, you know. And Very we have Amazonian, this... right? That's uh, one of Jeff Bezos' <laughs> favorite. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and we have this. Uh, so Jeff developed this uh, bread bread metaphor, which is like not baked to fully baked. So mm. it's like when someone shares an opinion about something, it's like, how baked are you on this? Like, is this an idea you had <laughs> last night that is still like very malleable? Or is this something you've been thinking about for like two years? And like, no matter what I say, you're not going to change your opinion. And if it's like, this is what I think we should do. I'm fully baked on this. I've thought through every single thing. It's like, okay, then let's do it. Right. Um, and so we also have this like bread, the, the bread, the bread scale. Um, All right, Tyler, this has been great. I've already run two frameworks to find. <laughs> there you go. This is uh, slowly transitioning into Tyler's frameworks podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's 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 helpful too because sometimes when someone shares something with you, you don't know off the bat like is this a brand new idea that's like open to suggestions or is this something you've been thinking about for years that like you're just not going to change your opinion about because I don't want to waste my time trying to change your mind if you're fucking. Um and so we've developed a common language where now like the other day Jeff and I were arguing about something and he goes this is my area so we have like areas where it's like, yeah. at the end, you know, he's like, this is my area. I'm fully baked. Let's talk about the next thing. And I'm like, all right, fine. Done. <laughs> Done. <laughs> all right, fine. Done. <laughs> like, uh, uh, that's great. Yeah. So transitioning. So great insights on team. Um, I'd love to talk about sort of like the actual business, right? So, I mean, you gave us a quick recap, but effectively what Asusu is doing is helping report credit payments to the credit bureaus, right? Which I'm sure I mean, you understand all the technical details that go into making that happen. I can assume that there are a decent amount of fairly technical steps and there's like a lot of, I imagine talking to credit bureaus and getting all of that to actually work was a pretty long and arduous process. It doesn't strike like what you guys are doing doesn't strike me as something that you could slap together in 24 hours, push out to the market and just start testing, right? Like getting uh, land, like getting commercial apartment 
companies to report to credit bureaus and credit bureaus allow that to be reported, <coughs> blah, 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 probably took a long time. So what I'm really curious is like, how did you guys test? Like, how did you, how did you get started? Did you just say like, well, we both know this is a problem. We're just going to go off of our lived experience, assuming that every immigrant has this and we're just going to put our heads down and build it however long it takes. And we know there's a market out there or did you like, how did you test and validate that? Like, is it worth actually solving this problem? You know, it's, it's interesting, Tyler. We actually learned that through interacting with our customers. So we actually didn't start out with the product that we take to market today. We actually started the business with a savings app and we created a way for people to save in groups together. And that's something that our families did. And we were like, cool, you know, how do we take this kind of age old savings style and digitize it and use it to help people kind of establish a savings base and build credit. And really, we learned two things pretty quickly. The first is this was a direct-to-consumer product, and direct-to-consumer in fintech is extremely expensive and challenging because you need to go to people, build trust, and ask for literally all their personal information up front. And it's just really hard to do without a crazy budget. So, you know, Tyler, we just met on this podcast or something like that. Hey, Tyler, what's your social security number? What's your bank account details, right? Like, it just doesn't work uh, the way that you <laughs> think it does. And so that's why cost of customer acquisition is so high in, in, in direct-to-consumer fintech. And then the second thing we learned is we were solving the wrong problem. Like, people were like, look, we all know we need to save money, but when we hit a financial emergency, there's nowhere we can go get debt. There's nowhere we can borrow money. We don't have any credit. And that kept coming up as a theme. And that's actually what drove us to shift our model to one a B2B approach where we partner with landlords and two, really focusing on solving the credit problem. And the thing about credit is there's about 45 million people in this country that don't have any credit score and maybe about 100 million that are what you'd call like credit challenge. So low credit score or like very thin credit score. And so it was a pretty big market problem that we were able to kind of stumble into. And to your point, we couldn't test, but we had had enough validation from our consumers and our customers. We had third parties saying like, hey, you know, there's this really interesting idea called rent reporting, like, can you help us do this, et cetera. And what, what had really happened was in 2013 or 14, the regulators had enabled the inclusion of alternative data into the credit system. And so the regulators were excited about it. The credit bureaus were excited about it. Landlords were excited about it because they thought it would drive increased payments. Renters were excited about it because they can build credit. And so all the stakeholders were there, but nothing was happening. And the reason was because nobody's willing to build the really unsexy middleware that just connects all these different property management software companies to the credit bureaus. So that's yeah. actually what we took a couple of years to build was just infrastructure that can integrate with property management companies, take that data out, essentially ingest it, transform it, and then report it to the credit bureaus in this format that's called Metro 2. It's super esoteric. You would have no reason to know it unless you're like deeply involved in credit. But we had to build all that infrastructure out. We call it the plumbing. And that's what's enabled us to then kind of scale because doing all that in such a highly regulated um, and esoteric industry, is, it takes a lot of like, work. Yeah, I've never heard of that. I only just recently found out that there's like nine different FICO credit scores. <laughs> <laughs> because i was like talking to my lender i was like the score that you said i have is not the score that he shows and he's like oh that's fico 2 we're using fico 9 and i was like what the fuck are you talking about like <laughs> and he's like there's lots of different credit scores that are weighted for different things and it's really all built for underwriters it's not really made for you to understand and i was like all right well that, that's cool um, yeah it's why you you see what you have in credit karma right and then it's actually not, not what you'll see on your home loan application so 
I guess that's like a vantage score, which is not really yeah. even a FICO. And then there's like nine fight. It's it's crazy. Um, so okay, super clear. So you guys started this. Okay, so I love this. It's sort of like a Trojan horse uh, use case, right? Which I talk to founders a lot about. Is like the problem you want to solve in the next seven years may not be exactly the first product you built right? This like Trojan horse or foot in the door concept of like, you need to build something that gets you into customers' hands, allows you to start generating revenue. And that opens up the ability to start thinking about sort of more complex problems like this one that you can't just like cold start, right? Like, you yep. know, I'm assuming you and your co-founder weren't just like sitting on $50 million to take three years with no revenue to just go out and build all the plumbing to make a SUSU work. So can you talk about that? progression like how did you guys so there's other trojan horse you had the savings platform was that like generating revenue and growing yeah so it was generating revenue and growing and actually um the the real challenge of the savings product was just that it wasn't venture backable not that there wasn't a market for it right so what we ended up doing to create revenue with that was we started licensing the technology out to nonprofits and community banks that we're already trying to help kind of low to moderate income consumers save more money. And we just became an extension of what they were doing. But as you can imagine, small nonprofits and community organizations don't have huge budgets. So, and it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one services, right? So it didn't have that sort of the, the features of what you would think about when you're thinking about a venture backed business. But what yeah. it did do is give us access to customers, helped us talk to people, learn about their needs, and really refine our kind of hypothesis for the problem to solve and give us time to build the route reporting platform. And so the other thing is like, when Migo and I were just super scrappy, right? So we outsourced our engineering, we didn't take salaries for a long time. We racked up over a hundred thousand dollars in personal credit card debt, all of those sort of things. So we didn't have the cash, but we just tried to really be scrappy to make sure that we could, you know, everything that we were making on the savings product was really going into the R and D, so to speak for the, for the uh, rent reporting product. So that was my next question. So how did you guys finance all that? You're just using personal credit cards? So it took a while, but we basically for the first, I'd say like year and a half of Asusu, we were just, we were just basically hustling for lack of a better word. But, but what ended up happening is for me, like I actually couch surfed for a few months and then for my personal finances, I ended up, finding this sort of two bedroom in, in Spanish Harlem and turned that into an Airbnb. So I couldn't qualify for that rental, but my friend basically signed the lease for me. I, and it was an apartment that kind of had like one big room and a small Harry Potter closet. And so I would sleep in like the little closet, rent out the bigger room on Airbnb. And that would literally cover my rent, my food and my health insurance. Right. So that was it. And then everything else was just like going on credit cards, I'd get like one cup of Starbucks coffee and use the same cup like 12 times because you get a free refill, right? Like all those little things to save every dollar. And that's just how we made it work. I mean, it really, there's a point in time where I was defaulting on every bill. Like my university sent me to collection. There was, it, it was just like whatever we could do to kind of get, get there. Um, and it took us about 18 months to raise our first seed round. So we had some small kind of angel checks, but it was, you know, like a, a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand, not something that we could use to pay ourselves or do anything with other than invest in the business. And so that's what we did over that 18 month period. And then we raised our first seed round in uh, 2019 for $1.6 million. And that was led by Acumen. So during that 18 month period, we just did whatever we had to. And it was, 
it was tough. It was, it was a really hard time, but I'm, I'm glad we stuck it out. I love that. Type two fun, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Very much. Now we look back at it and we can reminisce about it, but at the time it was absolutely miserable. I was like, I'm not the default on seven bills in like one month. This is, you know, but it's the kind of stuff that makes it worth it also. So just on that, right? Cause I mean, how did you like, how did you keep the fire going? Right? Like you're a smart guy. You're a well-spoken guy. At any point you could have gone and got a job, you know, making six figures in any number of industries. Like what kept the fire going? Like when you woke up in that Harry Potter closet, like how, how, like, I think that's one of the, I talk a lot about when you first start a company, it's this, uh, there's zero gravity. So it's like the first time that there's like really no external feedback. Like nobody really cares. There's no grades. There's no paycheck. There's no 360 reviews. Nobody cares. It's, it's pure unadulterated intrinsic motivation. So when you're going through those times, you're, you know, scrapping, you're running, you know, your university sending you collections. Like how'd you keep the fire going? You know, I'd say it's really two things. So one of my core beliefs is that nothing worth doing is worth doing alone, right? And so having that partner with Mimo and kind of going through it together, because no matter how shitty every day was, there's at least one person in the world who knew exactly what I was going through, right? And so... <laughs> Whose life was at least as bad as yours. <laughs> right, and so like that, but that goes a long way, right? Because it's like, I'm not just doing this alone. We're in this together. We can talk yeah. about how crappy XYZ or what a big win it was when we got our first ever customer review, right? Like every little thing, every bad thing, you can kind of have someone to experience it with. Um, and so that was one. And then two was just this fundamental belief that this thing needs to exist in the world, right? Like yeah. I felt the problem personally when we only felt the problem personally, we really believed that we were onto something. And that's what our customers were saying too, right? So while we didn't necessarily have revenue or venture capital and we weren't building a business that was at the time really something that venture capitalists were excited about, like we knew it was important. We knew there was a problem and we were hearing it from our actual users that this was meaningful for them. And so we just knew it needed to exist and like whatever it took to kind of bring it to life, right? Like I'm one of those people that didn't want to look back at life and feel like I had left something on the court. And I think that was one of those moments where it's like, until we like absolutely cannot go further, whatever damage we do to ourselves and our lives, we will get ourselves out of. But I don't want to look back and be like, oh, I, I gave up or I could have done more. or I just didn't take the shot. And so that also is just like a personality thing as well, I guess. But, you know, it was really it was really that kind of being able to commiserate with Mamimo, having that conviction of what we were doing and getting that user feedback that this needs to exist. There you go. It's that Daisy hustle, man. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was nuts, but, you know. <laughs> I love that. And I mean, obviously, I, you know, that the point about <clears throat> having uh, this belief that this needed to exist, it, you know, like what you said in the very beginning, I guess, really spoke to like your lived experience as well, like coming over and seeing your parents, you know, go through this and seeing how hard it was to land in the United States and, and like fully, you know, there's cultural assimilation, but like kind of this concept of like financial assimilation of like actually getting plugged into the infrastructure and how everything works. It's like you can have a, a visa or a green card or any of the things that let you be here, 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have access to like all the infrastructure from day one. Absolutely, man. And you know, what's, what's so interesting to me is most Americans, even people that have lived here and, and grown up here and all that stuff don't even understand credit. And it plays such a big role in life, right? It's like you said, cars, it's a lot of jobs actually screen for credit now, right? A lot of apartments will screen for credit. Obviously, you can't be a, you can't get a mortgage without credit. You can't get student loans without credit. And so if you don't have access to that, your opportunities in life are super limited. And, you know, there's just so many people that struggle with that. And so, you know, I got to see it from the lens of my family immigrating here, but it's just like a perpetual problem throughout the nation. And we're one of the only countries in the world, I'd say, that has so much emphasis on this three-digit number that kind of controls our lives in some ways, so. Yeah, exactly. And just how prolific debt is, right? I mean, debt is like such an incredibly powerful tool that for for better or worse, our entire economy runs off of and not to have access to that is really to not, you're really on the sidelines. Like you're not really fully participating in all of the opportunities that the economy has to offer if you don't have access to debt. Yeah. You know, I would say to the point you bring just, in terms of like that belief that this needs to exist. I think that's why I don't necessarily encourage everyone to be an entrepreneur, right? Like I wouldn't trade being an entrepreneur for anything in the world, but I really don't believe in being an entrepreneur for being an entrepreneur because you just, it's not easy. And I think people glamorize it sometimes, but like anytime that someone really believes in what they're doing and believes it needs to exist, that's when I feel like, like go do it, give it a shot, but don't do it just to do it because it's not a it's not an easy process or a fun journey necessarily. It's as you said, type two fun, but in the moment, not not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's why I asked like how you kept the fire going because I think like you know the there's there's something very Darwinian about entrepreneurship, which is like you can <laughs> you can fake it till you make it, you can do it to look cool or whatever, but at some point, the people who really want to be doing it versus the ones who don't are going to get weeded out in the you know Harry Potter closet or you know filling up starbucks cup over and over again or having your uh you know school send you to collections like those are real inflection points that separate the people who really want to be entrepreneurs versus the ones who like it's cool it's in vogue right now it looks cool on a hinge profile to like <laughs> company, but like <laughs> to really bring that to reality um there's a lot of downside uh or there's a lot of sacrifices too um so tell me a little bit about, so you guys went through that period. You had a co-founder who's writing it out with you. Um, like when you guys went out and raised your seed round, like what did the company look like? Like what did you guys pitch? Where were you at? So when we raised our seed round, uh, I remember this, yeah, so... So I have a couple of great seed round stories. So one, as I mentioned, when Mimo and I were couch, couch surfing, bootstrapping, whatever, right? And we started raising our seed round um, in January of 2019. And, you know, we had, we had one or two institutional investors that put in a very small check, kind of like a scout check. We did some pre-seed capital, right? So like 25K or whatever. And, you know, we started talking to them and, they like were excited about the business. They wanted to lead the round actually. And we very quickly actually got a, a lead check that said they'd do, you know, 50% of the $2 million round. 
and we thought we were there. We kind of put all of the round together, and I'll never forget this day. It was like March 25th, 2019. And that investor reached out to us and was like, hey, you know, actually, we have kind of spent our fund capital, and so we're not going to actually be part of this round anymore. And they, like, pulled out. And uh, that was, like, I will never forget that day in my life because it was like, we've been doing this for 15, 16 months, had no money. It was brutal. I remember just, like, walking up to my apartment after and, like, literally passing out in my girlfriend's lap. Like, we'd only been dating for three months, but I was just like, I can't do this shit anymore. It's just like, all right. this. So, like, the seed round definitely had its ups and downs. But, um, you know, after that moment, I think when Mimo and I actually talked the next day and we're like, screw it. Like, if these VCs don't want to bet on us, there's still something we can do here. And we actually took a couple months where we just focused on sales and the business. And we're like, forget the VCs. Let's focus on the business. We closed a few more contracts. We got a few more sales. And then we ended up just getting kind of introduced to some of the right investors, people who really wanted, were looking for businesses that had a profile like ours, were kind of growing, but also had a good social return. And one of the firms we started talking to was Acumen. And so they were the people who led our seed round. The way we presented it, the business was still largely focused on the savings company. And so, you know, we had put together enough kind of contracts in the past few months that the business profile looked a little more exciting. And we also had started doing some of the rep reporting stuff. And I remember VCs hated that. They absolutely hated the idea that we had two products. Right? They're like, oh, you know, you can't focus on multiple things at the same time. you got to do one at a time. It's hard enough building one business. You can't do two. And so that was like a total killjoy. And so we, we started learning from things like that, right? Like, okay, we don't want to have multiple products on this thing. Let's focus on one. Don't want people to think that we're too focused or we're unfocused. Um, you know, really thinking about how we frame traction. Like while we didn't have a ton of, you know, users or something like that, we had a lot of good enterprise partnerships. And so it was like, all right, let's, focus on the enterprise partnerships. And so we, we had this iterative process over that time period that really helped us start to present the business in a more kind of uh, accretive light. So you said, so the, by the way, it's, I mean, it's like the, the cardinal sin of venture capital, <laughs> but it is what it is, right? As a founder, it's like it happened. And so you woke up the next day and you said, you know, let's go raise money from customers. Like, let's just go focus on sales. Like, let's let's, let's go increase our sales pipeline, and um, you know, we're we're, we're going to figure it out. One hundred percent. Because it was like, you know what? Like, for whatever reason, the VC industry isn't really buying into what we're doing, and um, and we have customers and clients that actually do believe in what we're doing and want to be a part of this. So let's focus on that. The other thing I'd say is, you know, like obviously these days people talk a lot about diversity and inclusion in venture capital and. The reason I'd say that I'm like one, like there weren't a lot of founders who looked like when we and I that were raising money and that was I'm sure part of what was going on. But beyond that, the other thing I realized is that a lot of VCs just didn't have proximity to the problems we were trying to solve. Like Tyler, I can't tell you how many times I'd have a VC be like, who cares about 50 points on a credit score? Like, so will I use this credit score to go like finance an XYZ, like a Lamborghini? It's like, what are we talking about here? And I think the thing that we had to work on getting people to understand is we weren't solving a problem for the minority. We were solving a problem for the majority. And like, there's more people in this country struggling with, you know, day-to-day ends and whatnot. And so I think that was a gap that we had to overcome just in terms of helping folks understand the relevance of issues they might not have experienced firsthand. Right. And, and that was also a part of the pitch that evolved over time. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's incredibly insightful and I totally agree. I think that, um, like, I personally have never met 
anyone in the venture capital ecosystem who explicitly or even seems to implicitly be making decisions based on race or ethnicity or any of those things. I see all the time decisions being made from what you just said, which is a lack of perspective on socioeconomic strata, which is like, look, the reality is, is most VCs live in New York or California and wow. they live in affluent neighborhoods and they have a very poor, it's not even understanding. It's they don't have any emotional connection to the problems that so many other regions and socioeconomic groups within the country or even globally are yeah. experiencing. And so it's like, to me, it's not even, it's not that they're like lacking a rational understanding. It's like they don't have any emotional connection. It doesn't trigger that spark of like, wow, I really feel that blah, blah, blah. And I think it goes two ways. One is like, Asusu, like, you know, you guys had a real uphill battle because you're pitching for a socioeconomic strata that's not represented in venture capital. So you're never exactly. going to get that like emotional connection. You have the other side, which we're starting to see like later implications of, but it's like these companies that were funded for the opposite reason, like, like calm, for example, it's like, you know, for a, 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 f a phone app that plays guided meditation to raise venture capital dollars. It's like a, 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 a real lack of an understanding of like how far up the scale of, of needs uh, like guided meditation is for the general population of the United States or globally. Um, or, you know, I think like, you know, Allbirds is an interesting example, right? Um, like, yeah, cool, sustainably created shoes that you can run in and go to the office in that are really popular with investment bankers and blah, blah, blah. But like the majority of the country is buying their shoes from Target or Walmart. Yeah. Because they're cheap and they're there and that's where they shop anyways. And so it's like, if all birds are not in Walmart, then you're by default not getting access to the middle of the bell curve in terms of the, the, the population. And I think like, I... I personally think so i'll tell you there's i've talked about this before there's two things that automatically get me excited about founders number one is first generation immigrant uh and that's for a lot of reasons um, but one of the main reasons being just the representation of m a, a larger set of diverse problems from just a socioeconomic or a lived experience perspective and like you talked about it's like these are big numbers. 45 million people in the United States don't have a credit score. 100 million people are credit. Those are huge numbers. Um, and they represent, especially over the course of the next 50 years, if you, if you map out the average economic growth of an immigrant family in the United States over the course of 50 years, and you apply that to every immigrant family in the United States that hasn't been here for 50 years, the amount of economic growth driven by that cohort of people is incredibly large. Absolutely. So like diversity of those lived experiences, number one. Number two is just like the, the I think that being, moving to another country. So I've been an immigrant the opposite way, right? Like I've lived in Vietnam, 
uh, mm. for four years. I've lived in India. I've lived in Singapore. So it's not exactly the same thing, but I've had the experience of like getting thrown into like a totally new culture and you don't know anybody and you don't know anything, whatever. I think that like moving to a new country and experiencing all of that is actually really good preparation for being a founder. It is, <laughs> it is like as close to that no gravity experience I think you can have where it's like everything's new, like nothing is the same. You have, you're starting from scratch, blah, blah. Um, and then the second thing is if you've ever sold Cutco knives. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever sold oh, Cutco man. knives, I like automatically add one letter grade to your founder score. Because I'm like, if you can do that, that's like how. Did you how sell I, Cutco knives personally? I did sell Cutco knives. Yeah, that's like how I, how I got through college. Um, and I just think it's like, it's one of these like bread and butter things where like we get, I think we get like really. I think there's like a, I don't know generally what it's caused from, but I think we tend to like obfuscate like the really first principle things that matter when it comes to building a business. And to me, one of the things is like sales. Like, are you good at, do you understand how to do sales? And are you shameless enough to just tell somebody like, Hey, in my head, our product is like absolute dog shit and it barely works, but I'm going to tell you it's going to solve all your problems. And then I'm just going to go through the process of making sure that that's true, right? Manually. Like I'm going to be here with white gloves anytime. Someone, like, can you do that? Number one, do you have, are you shameless enough to do that? Number two is like, do you just understand the psychological mechanics of sales? And for me, it was like, it's as easy as like, if you've gone door to door and sold Cutco knives, I know for a fact that one, you're shameless. And number two is that you've actually been trained really effectively in the psychology of sales. And it's like, mm. it doesn't really, I do this with the founders all the time. I'm like, it doesn't really matter what you're selling. I'll walk you through the six or seven things that you need to say in any sales pitch, whether it's an email, a phone call in person, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so yeah, Cutco is like a huge, <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, oh, there's a lot that you said there that I, I resonate with, but I, but I couldn't agree more with you on, on the first point around kind of like, it's not necessarily like intentional, right? Like exclusion or something like that. It's just like, you know what you know, right? And you make decisions based on the experiences you've had and, and a lack of that uh, diverse set of experiences is, is to my, in my opinion, just an economic risk for VC that want to invest in businesses, right? Because you're going to invest in a lot of homogenous businesses. The market cap of that is limited. But if you're able to broaden that, and to your point, the immigrant experience is, is a unique one. And I think it, it also increases, you know, part of being a founder is like the amount of, honestly, like bullshit you can tolerate. And that's a big part of sales too, right? And it kind of increases the amount of stuff that you can deal with on a daily basis. And, yeah. you know, it's funny, you mentioned Cutco, and I think about when my friends in high school sold Cutco knives, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. And both Lamigo <laughs> and I, we're not technical founders, and I think a lot of VCs didn't really love that. But if there's one thing that we can do, it is sell. Like there's nothing I love more than selling. And that to me is the heart of a business. And I think, you know, we're both New York people versus Bay Area people. And I think that's the difference you sometimes see in like in that market, right? Like like sales is what to me builds a business. You don't have revenue, you don't have customers, you don't have people actually buying your product, but who cares how nice it looks or how smooth the technology is. At some point that catches up with you, but you can't you can't have a great product and expect people to come to you know what I mean? I just I've never subscribed to that. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a balance. And like what I tend to see is like venture capital or just like the, the startup zeitgeist like swings back and forth between the balance. So it's like three engineers and $100,000 can build anything. And then it's like swings back to being very commercial focused. It's all about distribution. We just need salespeople. This kind of like 
bread and butter like your dad's startup company where it's just like a bunch of sales guys in suits that like fly to Dallas or whatever. Um, <laughs> That's what real estate looks like today, you know. That's literally the real <laughs> yeah, estate <exactly>. industry. <laughs> yeah, but I think they're both required, yeah. you know, and um, I think a lot of founders will self-select examples where sales wasn't necessarily required, like, or it's not even self, like Facebook, for example. But the reality is, is like to actually make Facebook what it was, there was an incredible amount of sales yeah. that were required. Getting it off the ground, yeah, it was like a couple of engineers that built it, um, or like WhatsApp, right? I mean, WhatsApp is always a great example of like, it was like 10 engineers and they built this like huge global messaging platform, whatever. But founders will sort of self-select those examples to make themselves feel better about like, it's scary to go out and do sales. It is, it's scary because one, it takes shamelessness, right? You just have to like lay on your sword and be willing to go out there and huck knives. But number two, and I've only recently started like telling founders this is it's scary because it's the first time you're actually facing the music, right? Yeah. When you're behind your computer building, whatever, everything is fantasy land. Everything is like, we're going to change the world. We're going to do this. When you go out and start talking to customers and they're like, no, that's dumb. We don't want that. It's like you're, you are faced with an objective judgment on what you're building. Um, and there's obviously an incentive for founders to avoid that to their dismay, right? I think the yeah. longer you avoid that, the less chance you have of being successful. Like you need to go do that. And that's why I think like going out and talking to your customers up front is like, you shouldn't really be building anything that people are telling you they don't want. Mm. It's tough. It's tough to go out and be like, Hey, I have this amazing idea. Look at how smart I am. My ego is like so pumped up by how excited I am about how I'm going to change the world when you go out there and tell the people that you think would buy it from you and they're like, no, we don't want that. It's like, oh, fuck, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's real. And, you know, I love the way you described um, that experience, right? Where you're going out there, you're selling something that's half-baked and if someone wants to buy it, you just kind of have to fill in the pieces, right? And <laughs> like we do, we do phone support. Phone support is me calling your renters in this case or your customers, right? Or whatever, right? Like, um, yeah, we do automated email. That's just my Gmail account, right? Or like whatever. Yeah. It's it's there's a lot of duct tape that goes into building solutions and and uh, and but the thing is when you get that customer, it like is is amazing. And I also am a big subscriber and just people don't want what you're selling, ask them what they want and go build it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and to your point, I mean I think a lot of people get too focused on thinking that their customers are ever gonna care how it works. As long as it the works. reality is like they just care about the value. And, uh, the example I always use is like airlines. I'm like, why do you buy an airline ticket to get from A to B, right? Nobody goes on to Delta. Delta doesn't have a website where they explain how their airline operations work. <laughs> and, and rightly so, because they're probably terrifying, right? It would be absolutely terrifying to actually see how this whole thing works and how vulnerable it is to human mistake. But it's like, no, you don't care. You don't care how the airline works. I don't care how this plane works. I don't care how the airport interaction works. None of this stuff. I just care that I'm going to get from A to B and, you know, whatever else selection criteria I have. Some people care about price. Some people care about this. And that's what I tell founders all the time is like, look, you're trying, you're spending too much time trying to explain to your customers how an airline works and they don't care. What you need to tell them is like, if I could fly you from New York to San Francisco for 150 bucks, would you buy that ticket? Yes or no? 
And it's like, that's what you're trying to validate. Do they want to buy what you're trying to sell? It doesn't mean it all has to work right now. Because, like, you're not, you know, the cool thing about building a software startup is, like, it's not an airline, right? A software startup can't fall out of the sky and kill 150 people. <laughs> right. You don't, you don't need to be that kind of capex. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And even though, even taking it down the stack a little bit, I think one of the mistakes that Alan is making, I've definitely been guilty of this, right, is, like, you build something, it starts working, and you think people want, like, it to be fancier or sleeker. And actually, that's like such marginal value. Like people actually just want it to work. If you just do what you're supposed to do and it works, that's like 99% of why people buy. And the bells and whistles are great, but it's not actually why people are making the decision to your point, right? Like, sure, like I would always take a, an air, I'd always take a first class seat over one that's economy, but at the end of the day, I'm still going to go to the place regardless of that choice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, back to the airline metaphor, like Ryanair exists. Yeah. It exists and they have ads on the overhead bins and you have to pay to go to the bathroom. Like <laughs> there's yeah. a market for it. <laughs> it's 20 bucks and I'll do it. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah. So, well, Samir, this has been awesome. We're coming up on the hour and you know, you're running a billion dollar company. So I want to make sure that you can get back to it. Uh, I want to wrap up with two things. So, First question I ask everybody, who for aspiring founders, uh, et cetera, who do you follow? Like who are the people that you follow on Twitter, just thought leaders that you think founders should be listening to? That's a that's a great question. I besides me. Yeah, so number one, Tyler Norwood. <laughs> Everyone subscribe, listen. Um, but beyond that, you know, I'm uh I'm you know, having worked at LinkedIn, I've always been a LinkedIn junkie and I've read like everything yeah. that Reed Hoffman's ever put together, you know, folks like Jeff Lear, et cetera. So I, I definitely enjoyed learning about the PayPal mafia, but that's pretty cliche. I also um, enjoy learning about industry leaders outside of technology as well. Um, so whether we're talking about US presidents or like CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, or even, you know, one example that's used popularly is Phil Mike for Shoe Dog, but just in general, people that have built things and have passion for them and what their journeys have been like. But, yeah. Nice. And then last question, uh, books. So what's on your bookshelf? What have you read recently? Uh, good question. So one book that I always recommend is called The Color of Law. Um, that's a great book about kind of why we do what we do. Um, it's written by Richard Rothstein. And then looking at my bookshelf over here, um, I'm trying to think of a book that I really enjoyed recently. You know, I've actually been reading some of the Netflix culture books that I thought were really good. Oh, yeah. The, so there's, there's a no few. No Rules, now. Rules. Yeah. That's a, that's a great one. And, uh, you know, there's one by um, not Reed Hastings, but it's co-founder that I picked up recently that I started diving into. So that's another one that I've enjoyed. Nice. Well, awesome. Well, Samir, this has been great. Um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this incredible insight and um, I wish you guys the best of luck at Susu and uh, really, really excited to see that there are founders out here who are trying to solve uh, problems as important as the one you guys are solving. So good luck with everything. Please stay in touch. Let me know if there's anything that I can do to help you guys. And uh, again, really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tyler. Great to chat with you. Hey, everybody. It's Tyler again. Thanks so much for listening. If 
you're interested in building a venture-backed company like the one you just heard about, we would love to help. To learn more about our founder studios that we run around the world, please find more information at antler.co.